Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Okay, so I put out a newsletter this morning saying I'm calling it Joe Biden is the 46th president of the United States elect. Uh, the right continues to lose its mind, by the way. We'll get to that. But uh, at, at the moment that we're talking about this, uh, the Trump folks are refusing to concede. They, he will never concede. There will never be an acknowledgement that he actually lost this election. Uh, but Joe Biden, at minimum, is on track to win this election. He's pulled ahead in Pennsylvania. The uh, you know, as as we're talking here, the the mail-in ballots are coming in there overwhelmingly in his favor. I think that that is a, a safe assumption. Uh, Donald Trump's been fired. Um, uh, Biden's also got a very small lead in Georgia, which actually is a, is a is a BFD when you think about it. If he holds Nevada and he holds Arizona. He would finish with 306 electoral votes and probably more than 80 million popular votes. What's interesting about the 306 is that's that's what Trump won on election day, and and he kept calling that a landslide. And I keep thinking about imagine if all of this had happened actually in real time on Tuesday, that our perception of this election would be completely different. But um, last night the president came out and gave one of the most extraordinary speeches any president has ever given after an election. Trump's adult sons are pounding away on Republicans. This is the ultimate litmus test of loyalty. You need to be with us right now, right here, uh, if you want to run in 2024. And the usual suspects are saying, uh, how high do you really want us to uh, to jump? So uh, it is going to be interesting to see the split in the Republican Party where some of the grownups are trying to distance themselves from some of the more extreme attacks on the electoral process. But the Trump loyalists are totally all in on all of this. So to talk about this, where we are at right now, where we are going, the Bulwark's own Amanda Carpenter and the National Journal's Josh Kraschauer. How are you? Thanks for joining me on a rather interesting Friday morning. Tired, but uh, this is this has been quite a week, Charlie. It, it, it has it has been quite a week. You know, again, sort of to my point about that, if all of this had happened on on Tuesday night, I'm looking at the map, you know, yes, Democrats definitely underperformed under ballot, but I'm, uh, this looks, the presidential map looks a lot like what a lot of us expected to do. And it's a pretty impressive victory, but, um, Charlie, we, we yeah. need to take a second here. Okay, please feel yeah. the political joy Yeah, that we, thank you. I have not felt, I don't know when I've never I've never I, I don't know what this feels like, this this joy that is about to explode. I mean, I am screaming in my heart. The race hasn't been definitively called, but Joe Biden is on the path. He has proved the model that he presented to the public from the beginning, saying, I am the guy that can break the blue wall. And it has been a hell of a ride. Uh, even though we knew this race would shift around with the in-person ballots and mail-in ballots, I, I'll admit I felt pretty crummy Tuesday night thinking that this experiment in reaching out to Republican voters against Trump may, may have failed. And it's turned around just just as we thought it would, just as we thought it would. And it's, it, it is just incredible. Needed just needed to be patient. And it, yeah. with just enough people, I mean, how many times have we said, you don't, you only have to turn a small percentage of Republican voters to say you can reject this president. You don't have to become a progressive or a radical Antifa lover. You can just say Donald Trump is not the right person for this job. And you can vote for other Republicans that you believe in and are are of good character and you like their policies. Go ahead and do that. Have that pass. And that is coming to fruition at this moment. And so I I just, for the original Never Trumpers, Charlie, like you and I and others who have been fighting Donald Trump since he came down that damn escalator in the summer of 2015. This has been such a long time coming. It's a moment we didn't think we would ever maybe see, but it's happening. It is. It is happening. It is happening. And, I, and I'm, and I'm going to set aside a couple of days to to really, really savor it. You know, Josh, it also strikes me that looking at this map and looking at the Senate and, and the House, this is a very personal rejection of Donald Trump. I mean, this is you had a lot of people that apparently did vote down ballot for Republicans and said, you know what? 
Um, I don't want four more years of, of Donald Trump. Donald Trump has been fired by the American people, you know, in a, in a year when otherwise Republicans did pretty well. So um, he really ought to take it personally. That, that, that basically that the, the voters decided, we think you're a terrible human being and a terrible president and you and you repulse us and we're done with you. I mean, this was about as good a win for anti-Trump Republicans. It was good a night for anti-Trump Republicans as you could possibly have dreamed up. Now, we're going to have to wait to see what kind of hijinks Trump tries to cause once the, the you know, the official calls take place in, in the big battleground states that are leaning Joe Biden's way. But it looks like Joe Biden is going to win. 306 electoral votes. Mm-hmm. The same number Donald Trump I know. won in I think 2016. Georgia. Yeah. If I told you Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and also Michigan flipped, uh, you would say that would be a pretty darn good night for, for Democrats, for Joe Biden, certainly, in, in, at the beginning uh, of election night. Plus a massive and, popular vote win. I mean, yeah, so, I mean so Donald I think, Trump got 306 electoral votes, but lost. Uh, do, uh, Joe Biden's getting 306 electoral votes and winning by, you know, four or five million votes. Absolutely. And, 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 and in addition, the story of the night down ballot was there were a lot of, to, to, to President Trump's credit, there were a lot of voters that showed up for him and, and for, and I, I think also against the, the Democratic Party's drift to the left. There was a lot of energy on the right as well. But there were also a lot of persuadable voters that even with that historic turnout, there were a critical mass of persuadable voters across the country in these big battleground states that rejected his personal craziness, the corruption, the conspiracy theorizing. That ultimately was the if Trump sounded, you know, acted normal, he could have perhaps won a second term. But it was the the, the craziness that cost him. Um, ultimately in, the, in this election. And, you know, I, 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 I'm an optimist generally, um, but when I look at the down ballot results, you are looking at the, the real possibility of genuine centrism, genuine moderation. Mm-hmm. When all, all the craziness is said and done, when we inaugurate our new, you know, Joe Biden's inauguration, assuming that the results hold, hold up, when that happens in January, all the political incentives are going to be in favor of some degree of deal making, some degree of moderation, even though both extremes within both parties are getting worse because the, that, the extremes cancel each other out. But now you've got a Senate that's going to be evenly divided. Probably uh, McConnell remains as majority leader, but you've got Susan Collins, Joe Manchin, and Mitt Romney being the power players in the Senate. They're, they're, they're going to ultimately, ultimately be the deal makers. They're going to have a whole lot more political leverage than they've ever had in their careers. So, and, and Joe, and, you know, if, if, and Joe Biden has always been a pragmatist. He's always been someone who likes to cut deals. McConnell has basically said, I'll work with you, but you can't pick any, I'm not going to confirm any left wingers to your cabinet. So you better pick some, some pragmatic, mm. pragmatic folks to, to serve in the executive branch. But I, I think there's also the political prospect of McConnell needing to cut deals with Biden because the Senate map down the road is in 2022 is actually pretty tough for McConnell. So he can't be an obstructionist. He can't just say no to everything Joe Biden wants because he would pay a political price. Okay. So I, just, I, mean, this is, I think there's going to be a lot of craziness in the next couple of weeks as yeah. Trump rejects the results, as he tries to, to file lawsuits that are frivolous in many of these states. But the margin is not close. I mean, Pennsylvania's margin is, is not ultimately going to be close. It, it, right. It's not going yeah, to be close. Joe, how Joe Biden navigates the next few weeks will be very telling for his presidency. It, it, incredibly important for setting up his presidency. Um, CNN was reporting earlier today that he's reaching out to for Republican friends that he's had in the Senate and otherwise um, to make a statement about accepting re- election results in the event that Donald Trump doesn't. Mm, interesting. Don't expect he will. And so I think that's that's a really smart thing to do. Um, and. What's notable about Joe Biden through the campaign is how steady and calm he's been. I think to the frustration sometimes, including people like me who wish that he would have spoken out uh, harder about some things along the way. But it this just goes to his model of just being calm, steady, institutionalist. And so he, he can do a lot of things to set himself up for a smooth presidency because of the chaos that is coming in a couple of weeks. So let me push back a little bit on Josh, who with whom I, I usually agree 100% with, um, about you know this is the best possible result for you know anti-Trump Republicans. <laughs> I think there was a certain amount of disappointment that we were hoping for a much more thorough repudiation of Trumpism 
and that all of his his enablers and supporters should have paid a price for all of this because i think there's a sense among the republicans basically saying okay well we we may not have trump but but you know trump trumpism itself worked out pretty well for us that 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 as a result of this there's not going to be the kind of introspection there's not going to be the kind of autopsy that republicans need to do to go okay did we really go off the rails were these trade-offs really worth it um let's look in the mirror a little bit more intensely so Given given the fact that they increased the number of seats in the House of Representatives, that they 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 held the, the the Senate, that a lot of them are going, yeah, that was that was that was okay. The Trump era was okay for us. So I guess as an anti-Trump Republican, I'm glad to be rid of Trump, but I just don't feel that we've had an exorcism of Trumpism. I think it really defend, depends on how you define Trumpism, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's almost like a Rorschach test for different republic different anti-Trump Republicans. You know, I think with Trump out of power, you're going to lose the corrupting government. You're going to lose the conspiracy theorizing from the White House. You're going to lose, you know, the the, the total uh, demand that, you know, the total, uh, obs- uh, you know. Uh, obsequiousness. Yeah, obsequiousness <laughs> from every, Repu- every Republican, right? Who Because there's a, just a political demand that when you're in, when the president uh, is, is, is saying something and 95% of Republicans feel the same way, you're for your own political survival, you have to follow suit. That's there's still going to be a huge base in the Republican Party that loves Trump and, and listens to his every word, but he's not going to be in power, and that's a huge difference. When, when he is out of office and, and and he doesn't have the power that he does right now, that that's a big, big, significant change. And I also think that look, I mean, I think you know, as a country, it's healthy to grapple with some of the issues and policies that Trump Trump brought to the forefront that are kind of lumped into Trumpism. And, you know, I look, I think that the Republican Party needs to be a more populist party. To, to, I mean, I, I don't know if that's an unhealthy thing um, if, if, if you do it in moderation, if you do it with, with thoughtfulness. And, um, you know, you know, the owning of the libs is is ridiculous and it's become negative polarization has become toxic uh, in Washington. But I think it's also fair to say that if you had a wave election that repudiated Trump, Trump and Trumpism and Democrats had a huge majority in the Senate and an expanded majority in the House, there would be some risks that the Republican Party would still be just as ex- just as extreme. They would feel uh, even more aggrieved. And you'd have a Democratic Party that would make them feel aggrieved because they'd be able to do things in Washington with those majorities that would probably tick off a whole lot of those voters, too. Well, that, so, and that, that, of course, is one of the big developments of this week, that that any prospect for a radical progressive agenda has probably evaporated. We're not going to see a big Green New Deal. We're not going to see a public option in healthcare. Um, but 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 Amanda, you want to get your take on this, because I, I think that, that yes, uh, I, I think anti-Trump Trump, uh, folk, we, we never Trumpers do have somewhat mixed feelings about this. I mean, I really do want to cling to the national nightmare being over that the, you know, orange God King is, is leaving, but to watch Lindsey Graham, to watch some of these other senators be reelected, um, to reward them for their bad behavior seems, I don't know, a little bit disappointing. Yeah, I guess to push back just a touch on Josh, if the theory is, is that Trumpism goes away because Donald Trump is no longer in power then why are all these Republican senators and 2024 hopefuls at this very moment positioning themselves with the election conspiracy theories he's pushing? And that's because this strain of Trumpism was present in the Republican Party and mostly conservative media before Trump you know, gave it a moniker. And Trump isn't going away. His role in the Republican Party isn't going away. And when I see people like Nikki Haley and Tom Cotton sidling up to Trump's latest gambit when he's on the verge of defeat is extremely concerning. And it's not this isn't just another conspiracy theory. This is an attack on our voting system. They are making up stories about poll watchers and voter fraud without a shred of evidence. They're essentially asking for an investigation and to find the long form ballots. This is birtherism all over again. It's gaslighting. It's what Donald Trump has always done. And my belief is that this method of campaigning has become addictive in a way that I don't think Republicans who see this as a model uh, to win a Republican primary 
are, are going to disabuse themselves. Well, you see, I, 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 I think Amanda's onto something because when we, we, let's like shift a little bit to talk about uh, what is happening right now with the with, with the election because we've never actually seen this before. I mean, anything like this. Um, I was listening last night as I was waiting for some of the returns to come into to John McCain's concession speech to Barack Obama, which is shockingly gracious and thoughtful and complimentary, uh, both to Barack Obama and the Democratic process. George H.W. Bush, the last Republican who was defeated for reelection, how gracious his speech was after a very bitter campaign with Bill Clinton, almost almost like voices from a different century, a, a, a different culture. We're not going to get that. We are going to get scorched earth, absolute denial. I don't, I, th- I think, uh, use the word frivolous, uh, Josh, to talk about the lawsuits, and they are frivolous. This is not going to be decided in the courts, I don't think. I don't see any prospect of all of this. But the president seems completely committed to delegitimizing this election. He is attacking democracy, he is attacking democratic norms. There will be street protests. It is, it is a, a moment of ugliness that generally we have avoided uh, even in the most contentious elections. Richard Nixon did not put the country through this in 1960. Al Gore did not put the country through this uh, in 2000. Um, you know, McCain, others, every other loser has managed to be gracious and respectful for the process. We're not seeing that. And it is interesting, and I think this is what, what, what Amanda was alluding to, they've made this now a litmus test for 2024. Don Jr. and Eric are out there. The Republican Party, you need to speak out. You need to be there right now. You need to buy this bullshit. You need to engage in the demagoguery right now if you are going to uh, stay in good favor with Trump world. So that's a suggestion of the ongoing toxicity of, of Trumpism in the Republican Party, isn't it? I mean, there's real damage that they do with this sort of thing. Well, there's obvious toxicity. And, and, and I, you know, this is a demand side problem more than a supply side problem, right? I mean, this is, and I thought Amanda made a great point that, you know, the uh, Donald Trump Jr. tweet that, where are, where are my Republican friends? Where, yeah. where, where are the people? The fact that they weren't there for 24 hours, I thought was also telling. The fact that Trump Jr. needed to use Twitter to, to rally the troops up again. <laughs> That, that that also may be an encouraging sign because you didn't have in, the instincts of someone like Lindsey Graham initially or Ted Cruz to defend Trump. There's not a lot of uh, support until that political pressure gets put to bear. And it could go both ways. I could see it going either way. But I, I, but I, I think if we get past this moment of turbulence and if Joe Biden is inaugurated uh, in, into the presidency in January of 2021, Ultimately, the president drives coverage. The president is sort of, it's sort of, uh, you know, he's, he's sort of the organizing principle in Washington. And if Joe Biden takes office and all the, you know, who knows how crazy it gets before we get to January. But if Joe Biden does take that oath of office and he governs in a, in a, in a pragmatic, responsible fashion and he listens to some of the Republican concerns and doesn't, you know, needlessly alienate them. Um, you're going to have like the tea, we had a Tea Party faction of nihilists in 2010 and ultimately, Republicans were still able to get things done, uh, even though it wasn't it wasn't pretty at times. Um, I, I think that's a more likely kind of outlook. And we're going back to kind of where we yeah. were in, in with Obama in office. And I think Obama was much more liberal than Biden. He he liked to stir the, the hornet's nest at times with the Republican opposition. I, I think Biden is almost an ideal figure for this moment. And I'm not saying that the oh, I agree with that. And the tribalism is going to go away. It's not. But I could see Biden actually like trying to come up with an agenda on the economy on getting out of this uh you know mess with uh with the, with the pandemic and actually having some sensible uh, public health strategies in place things that are not as as polarizing issues that are not uh, culture war issues and i actually think he could actually find some some surprise and success early on it, you know once we get past inauguration day and he has that political honeymoon well, i i agree well, but, but, but amanda can we go back into the fever swamp though because you know all these players okay yeah, so right. amanda, amanda you know all of these players <laughs> and so let me just tell you, and i'm sort of working this up because i think josh raised an interesting question so you have people like chris christie who said hey you know let's let's you know not engage in this kind of rhetoric even your good buddy rick santorum was suggesting that the president was crossing a line. Even Rick Santorum. 
Um, Larry Hogan and other Republicans are coming out and saying, you know, we need to respect the process. And you're looking at the people around Trump right now, the people who are leading the the fight. You know, he apparently at one point they wanted to find a Jim Baker type figure to come in and help. Instead, they have Corey Lewandowski, Pam Bondi. <laughs> you have you have the the whole misfit toy crowd out there, Rick Grinnell, Matt Schlapp, and those mm-hmm. folks. It it does seem that we're kind of down to the dead enders at the moment. I mean, it's it's it, it may be Alex Jones, you know, and the and the and the and the grown sons, um, and 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 those folks, but. But at least in terms of mainstream Republicans, there doesn't seem to be a lot of rallying around. Now, having said that, as soon as Don Jr. put out the tweet, you 2024 people, where are you? You had Lindsey Graham, you know, j- jumping, you know, jumping at the leash and, and Ted Cruz tweeting out just totally bizarre, batshit crazy conspiracy theory. So so we, how, do you, how do you sort this out, Amanda? I mean, who's who's going where here? Yeah, I, I can't fast forward to inauguration day where President Biden unveils a COVID stimulus bill in the elusive infrastructure structure package. Um, that's probably where he wants to go. It'll be done quietly without a lot of fanfare because Joe Biden isn't going to be a president who sucks up the energy in the room. And so that vacuum will be filled by the voices of Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, and others. And so what are they going to talk about? The next couple of weeks are going to be foundational. What I predict now is that there is going to be a fight over whether you call Joe Biden president-elect mm. or not. That will, be, that will be a test. Who addresses him as president-elect? So it will be seen, it will be seen as an act of disloyalty to acknowledge that Joe Biden is the president-elect. And I'm not That'll become a litmus about, I'm not even talking about Republican senators, talking yeah. about Fox News. Will they accept the results? Or will they say, well, wow. Donald Trump never conceded, so therefore wow. he's not a legitimate president. That's where I see this going. And so this is what I see badly. the test of Joe Biden's um, organizational structure and whether he is capable of mounting a national persuasion campaign to get the country to accept the results and acknowledge him as president. That is the test that is coming in the next three weeks. So this is an interesting test for Republicans, um, whether they're going to put basically, you know, the, the democracy over over the party. Would This would be seems like a good moment for George W. Bush to come out of uh, hiding and, oh, good Lord, yeah. and maybe to stand with all of the living ex-presidents and say, look, we need to acknowledge this. We need to be there. Um, I, I, and, and this is your point is is really important. I do think that this is a time where we need to take names. You know, this is a defining moment. You know, who are the ones who are going to be standing with, with the process, uh, you know, with, with, with the election, with, with the democracy, uh, by the way, there's no, there's Josh, there's no, there's no way that, that Donald Trump is showing up at the inauguration at all. Is there? I mean, none. who knows? Who knows? I'm calling it. Is there going to be a mass event? I mean, we'll yeah. still be in the middle of COVID. I think yeah. Joe Biden uh, may have a very small event on uh, this event, and it's a moot point. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to say one thing to the to the point about Rupert, Rupert Murdoch. I think is going to be a key figure. Oh yeah. And I, one thing I didn't mention is that the New York Post, a lot of the stories in today's paper uh, are not favorable towards Trump. Downcast Trump yeah. makes baseless election fraud claims in the White House. And if you've been watching, you know, Fox News is, uh, you know, straight news coverage, they have been appropriately skeptical of a lot of the, these crazy uh, conspiracy well, theories. It was a bonfire last night, stuff, It's yeah. different. But, but, but there's there's that's going to be the Yeah, they're still letting some stuff go. Yeah, they are. It was, that, was, that was bad last night. And in fact, I, I don't know whether you heard Jake Tapper actually, you know, on, on CNN was saying that, look, there's a real responsibility for Fox and, and, and for the Murdochs to 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 play a constructive role here you know it, it, to not put their ratings and and their profits ahead of the country because th- this is one of these periods where we could tear the country apart and long-term damage uh you know we think things are bad now but th- this this next few months if if in fact the republicans decide they're just simply not going to recognize the legitimacy and they're going to continue to push this i mean there's there's real damage and fox has some responsibility there Sure. And I think it was pretty notable that Fox was the first uh, network to call Arizona for Joe Biden. Um, and, and the 
count is you know is close there, but um, I thought that was very significant. And then the wow. New York Post today, I think, is, is is also. I mean, there's a lot of competing. There's a lot of Kremlinology to, to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with Amanda that you know that the the civil war has been decided in either direction. It's being it's being fought under the radar right now, and I think when the vote is clear that you know Pennsylvania is not going to be particularly close, uh, and I think Georgia, the fact that you have a Democrat winning Georgia in all likelihood for the first time since 1992, I mean the, the writing is going to be on the wall. And That's I think- an amazing story. Could we just talk about Georgia just for a moment? Because I mean that is if, again if, if this was before the election. And somebody said, you know what, they're going to flip Georgia. If you would have told me that six months ago, I would have really thought you were smoking something. But I mean, this this is an indication that some of the stuff that and I've been critical of Stacey Abrams. I want to make it clear here. I'm not forgetting the fact that I was critical of her. She really laid the groundwork for all of this. And the backlash against the voter suppression and some of the other uh, things that were going on in Georgia and the crazification of the Republican Party has really been dramatic. And I kind of wonder whether we're seeing one of these tectonic shifts, whether or not we're going to start to see that Georgia is going to become more like Virginia in in in, in the future. That you did, you know, some things didn't happen. Texas didn't flip. We don't know what's going to happen with Arizona. But I thought that the Georgia results... Um, are among the most dramatic turnarounds from this year's election. Thoughts on that? Yeah, well, first, number one, it's it's poetic justice that it's possible that John, the late John McCain and the late John Lewis may have made the difference in their own ways because of Trump's oh, insane feuds yeah. against those two iconic figures. Yeah, you know, Amanda. the races in Arizona and Georgia are going to be going down to the wire. Yeah. Democrats are favorite. It looks like they're going to win both, but it's going to be close. It, 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 the, all evidence suggests that Trump's feud with John Lewis energized black voters around Atlanta and across the state. And Trump's feud with John McCain swung moderate Republicans in Maricopa County and, and in other suburban parts of Arizona towards Joe Biden. And, and it got Cindy McCain on his team, yeah. on Joe Biden's team as well. Amanda? Yeah, when it comes to Georgia, what is most interesting to me are the Senate races. No one would have predicted we would have had a double Senate runoff coming out of that state. And so now we're poised to have two Senate races in January without Trump at the top of the ticket. And both Republicans, uh, Kelly Loeffler and Purdue, have tied their fates to Trump, run closely with them as humanly possible. And what do you do How does that play out in Georgia when Trump is no longer there? Mm. Is it going to be a high turnout election, a low turnout election? Um, In many ways, the Loeffler-Warnock race will be uh, a referendum on MLK. Um, Warnock is a pastor in MLK's old church. He's well-known in that city. Kelly Loeffler owned the co-owner of the Atlanta Dream WNBA team, which she got, you know, in a very public fight with the team when they wanted to make a statement on Black Lives Matter. Um, It was a lot of virtue signaling, but she so alienated her own team, the Atlanta Dream, which is named after the I Have a Dream speech, that they began wearing shirts saying, vote Warnock. Um, And so... That is going to be fascinating to see play out, you know, after all the talk about voter suppression, civil rights in a January race in the wake of a Trump defeat. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a base versus base, two elections, base versus base in in Georgia. I think that is actually going to be a test of whether it was more Joe Biden and his moderation that helped Democrats win Georgia or it was Stacey Abrams and her kind of base motivation. Uh, which cl- both of them clearly played a role in, in the Democrats' success in Georgia. But I think ultimately Biden deserves a lot more credit. And you look at Arizona, the same same type of results. You're, you're seeing a swing in the suburbs that is going to be historic Amazing, um, yeah. in, 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 in the Atlanta suburbs. And I don't, you know, Abrams ran two years ago and just fell short, just wasn't able to win enough of the vote in the suburbs. And I think Biden ultimately being sort of a moderate old white guy <laughs> was just reassuring enough um, to get seemingly get over the top, it'll be very interesting to, to Amanda's point. You know, you have pretty liberal candidates on the ballot in Warnock and Ossoff 
uh, for the Democrats that are that don't have the same track record as Joe Biden. So, you know, look, if Democrats do well, it's a sign that Abrams, her, her whole her whole argument has been spot on, that, that it's the energy, it's the liberal base, it's the activism that really wins Georgia for the Democrats. But if they end up falling well short of where uh, Biden was on Election Day, it, it is a sign that, the you know, this argument that's going on in the Democratic Party, it's the moderation, it's the pragmatism that ultimately won Georgia for, for the Democrats. So I think that sent, those Senate races are going to be fascinating to answer that kind of <laughs> endless question that's dividing the Democratic Party right now. And expensive. Can you just imagine how much money they're going to dump in there? By the way, speaking of money, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look up this. You probably have this at your fingertips. When you look at the amount of money the Democrats spend in some of these Senate races uh, to fall short, um, th- there have got to be some people who are going back to the drawing board on the amount of money that they dumped into South Carolina and into Kentucky and to other states, and they came up with absolutely nothing. I mean, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Is that an indication that that the that it was uh, excessive exuberance, or or is is money just not as important as we sometimes think it is? I'd rather have the right message than a billion dollars. I would rather be Joe Biden than Michael Bloomberg, right? I would rather have a message that resonates with voters instead of relying on outside ideologically driven money that often makes candidates sort of too passive and not realizing that that money can't buy you an effective message that is able to to resonate with, with the voters in your state. And I think Democrats got kind of high on their own, on their own supply. They had this historic green wave, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars pouring in to these big Senate races, including in red states. Yet, you know, Lindsey Graham won by double digits. Kansas wasn't close. I know. After all, after all this. So, Amanda, is is money overrated? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, the 2016 Donald Trump didn't have the money. Still won. I mean, money is helpful, but I feel like a lot of Republicans were just openly laughing at the money going into the Kentucky race. I mean, why? You know, this can go on both sides, you know, with Martha McSally, uh, Amy McGrath, MJ Hager. You can't keep it's not a good idea to run a candidate that just lost. It's not a good idea. Like on paper, if they didn't build a successful base with a message in the first race, why do you elevate them then to a second race? I I can't wrap my mind around that. It it does tell you something. So so here, here are the numbers. and I was able to find them. Okay, so Jamie Harrison in South Carolina raised $109 million, lost by 11 points. Amy McGrath raised $90 million, loses by 20 points. Sarah Gideon in Maine raised $70 million. How do you spend $70 million in Maine? Loses by nine points. Hagar um, raised $24 million in Texas, loses by 10 points. Boy, those those are just brutal numbers. Those well, are brutal. Here's a good example of what happens when you have so much money, you don't know what to do with it. Uh, in, in, in South Carolina, uh, Jimmy Harrison it, ran an ad that basically was telling Republicans to vote for the third party conservative yeah. candidate on the ballot. And unfortunately, it said, I'm Jimmy Harrison and I paid for this message. I, I, I sponsored this message. Oh, great. And if you're, uh, you know, you're basically giving away the game. If you're trying to play dirty tricks, or you're trying to, you know, be a little creative. You ultimately are saying at the beginning of your ad, I, I, the Democrat is the one paying for the message. So I think they got a little too, I mean, I think they got a little too, um, you know, the thing that, that Harrison wasn't able to do, and I, he would have had a tough, he was a great candidate. I think he's got a bright future in, in politics. But I think his struggle was, how do you win over some of those Trump voters? He, right. he really didn't offer a, a message on policy that was at least giving a nod to the many Trump voters in South Carolina. And that's sort of emblematic of the Democratic Party's larger challenges, because to hold the House, to hold, you know, to win back the Senate, they've got to give an inch on some some issues. They've got to find a way, especially on cultural issues, that doesn't scare off and doesn't energize the, the, the Trumpian side of the Republican yeah. Party. Yeah. And, and to that easy. point. It's not easy, but but it you know Abigail Spanberger was I saying want to get to her in a minute, thing, yeah, and she won re-election, uh, you know, Tuesday night, barely, yeah. Amanda, yeah, I was just gonna say, it's not Harrison's fault that everyone was sending him millions and millions of dollars. It, it's just he didn't know exactly what to do with that. I, I do draw a distinction between a candidate like him and these also rants who lost, but what the lesson is that incredible amount of money he was getting became the story during a critical time in his race. And we saw exactly what Lindsey Graham did, right? He went on TV 
embarrassingly, relentlessly and said, all this out-of-state money is pouring in against me. Please help me. Please help me. I'm, I'm going to die here. And for South Carolinians, the idea of all this New York, California money coming in is very off-putting. And so while Charlie, you and I we were there, we made fun of Lindsay for it. It That was the right place. It it so let me do a, a, a U-turn because we can do this on a podcast and go back to something we talked about earlier, which is the, the president of the United States has lost this election, I believe, and is going to refuse to concede. We've never really had this happen before in American history. And I think we need to emphasize this, that we're in a little bit of ugly, uncharted territory here. Uh, Amanda, you wrote a um, really passionate response to the president's speech yesterday. And I guess the question is, you know, the president comes out, it was kind of low energy. Was it more pathetic or dangerous? It's interesting because people had different takes on it, that this was one of the low points in American history. This was a dangerous attack on democracy. Other people thought it was just sort of the president, you know, just being Donald Trump, throwing out baseless conspiracy theories, one lie after another, MSNBC cut away from him after about 50 seconds. So what was your main takeaway from the president's speech, which signals what's going to be happening over the next 70 days? Well, my headline was the president pathetic loser. So I'm going to take the pathetic of that bet. But that's only because, Charlie, I don't view him or his team as being competent enough to execute on their dangerous threats. They're just Rudy Giuliani isn't going to be able to do it. Um, But that was that was really a momentous thing he did when he walked into the briefing room on the cusp of defeat. And instead of having a gracious moment, which we knew was never going to happen, he just kept pushing the the worst. If he actually believed these things would be terrible for our democracy. And I, I just viewed him as a man, a terminally ill man on his deathbed who instead of having that deathbed confession where he reveals his most innermost thoughts and this is what I did wrong and hope to make right. He, he was pushing the Kool-Aid on anybody that would take a sip. He wants people to go down with him. And we know this, we know this is the person he is, but to watch the president of the United States act that way in his final moments was nothing but pathetic. I I thought Anderson Cooper had the line of the night. You heard that? That the Trump was an obese turtle on his back, flailing in the hot sun, and yet you had the Trump loyalists who are still there, and he sent out the bat signal: "We are not going to concede. We are never going to concede." And you know, Matt Schlapp is out there saying, "If you guys ever want to speak at CPAC again, you better be on the streets and all of that stuff." But you it was Space Force fleece with your name embroidered on the front. Yeah, it, it's getting pathetic. It really is getting pathetic, and. Um, you know, I, I I didn't think Trump was actually ever going to concede and offer right. a concession speech, even if he lost in a big by a bigger margin. I, you know, he wants to create. I mean, I think a lot of this is for his own personal messed up psychology. Yes, he wants to create this alternative universe in his head where he's never a loser, and you know, he's using this language of the election being rigged, and he's been doing this for years, not to so so his supporters and so that that tribe that 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 lives by his every word still views him as a winner. Uh, but but that's. Only a small slice of his, or that's only a small slice of his of the people who voted for him uh, this election night. And you know, ultimately, I I don't think anyone, even even the bigger loyalists in that White House, they don't see him like holding on to to power and just demanding to be president. I think it's about creating this like kind of alternative universe. No, I, I think so, so he can go go and start his own kind of radio network or TV, do whatever he's doing post presidency, and, cool. and, and 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 you know have that 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 warm support from these these hardcore fans. And, and, you know, we'll see what happens in the coming days, but I think a, a lot of it is for his psychological needs and, and his support, hardcore supporters, psychological needs. So one, one of the things that that's already being floating out here, and I, I guess I was, I was struck by the fact that Don Jr. Put out that, you know, called out the 2024 hopefuls because I've always thought, you know, there, there's always that possibility that Donald Trump himself could win in 2024. And it really, it, speaking of his own psychology and his own interest, to have people think that he's not a lame duck, that he might actually try a comeback, that's going to be appealing to him. I'm not saying he's going to do it. Now, he constitutionally can run in 2024. I know people are, are thinking, oh, my God, Charlie, don't be this this negative. But 
it and the fact that Don Jr. is sort of threatening the other 2024 challengers. Think about the impact this has on the Republican Party if Donald Trump basically wants to luxuriate in at least that delusion. He can freeze the other candidates, can't he? He can freeze fundraising and organization. He can actually hold this thing in sort of a, a limbo for a long time. And then with nobody having gotten any traction whatsoever, he can say, well, I've decided I'm not going to run. But Don Jr., ladies and gentlemen, Don Jr., how about that? How about that for your most dystopian possible scenario? Amanda, is this... Uh, I, I think that's all likely. I think that's exactly. I just made it all up. So you all know, Matt Schlapp was tweeting too. If you want to speak at CPAC again, you I know you better get stand up now. But this is a sentiment I've expressed before to you, Charlie. It's never going to be the same again. If the Republican Party or the next Republican president is going to break free from Trumpism, those old networks are gone. The networks of going to the CPAC things. The people who are in charge of, you know, the Republican Party in Texas right now, per se, Alan West, you're going to have to be willing to walk away from that on some level. It's, it's this how it's going to be. Otherwise, you will be beholden to Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr., whatever derivative Fox News they start forever. Hmm. So if that is the future that you want. Play that game. But if you know that's not the path for you, you have to invent a new game. This is what all successful presidents yes. do. They have to create a new winning coalition. You never win on somebody else's playbook. Sure, you might take bits and pieces of it, but that's just not the way to go unless you want to be derivative of Trump. And there's a lot of people raising their hand to say, yes, yes, I would like to cobble that base back together. Nikki Haley, Christy Nome, Tom Cotton. I mean, go ahead and try. Yeah, but yes, if Donald Trump didn't win this election on his own playbook, why would anyone else take it? Yeah, Josh. Charlie, you want to hear a poll, first poll out for 2024? Because I think <laughs> it's by John McLaughlin, by the way, yeah, by not giving these numbers a whole lot of credence. But it does test Donald Trump Jr. in a very large Republican primary field with more establishment. Oh, and he's number two. Yeah. And, and, and well, he's, he's number two, but he's at 20, 20%, yeah. 20% of the Republican electorate. Yeah. So I, I view what could happen, and, and we've been going back and forth about whether you know this is the faction that's going to dominate the party or just be sort of one of many factions within the party. I mean, I, I see sort of this as sort of a Tea Party on steroids moment in, in a Biden presidency, where you ha- and I, you know, like we all remember Sarah Palin, right? And, and, and that was right, that let me vote. push back a little bit because you mentioned the Tea Party twice, and I was you know <laughs> a part of that. I, this is the Tea Party did have basis in some policy objections to. President Obama, not wanting universal health care, being upset about the spending. The Trump base has no interest in policies. It's nothing but grievance, identity politics, and loyalty to the leader, unless I'm missing something. Well, among, among the leadership, but among the vote, there's a huge degree of overlap between the voters who really were drawn to that Tea Party message. And, and that, that was sort of the irony, right? I mean, it was that a lot of it was economic-based and entitled, and, and right. but, but the cultural grievances were really what ultimately drove a lot of that support. So I, I agree with you, Amanda. Like I, the, the issues that the Tea Party leadership stood for were noble and conservative and principled. But when you actually look at the grassroots and, and where that support was coming from, there is a large overlap. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Parties. Yeah, we, so, we had to look at it in a uh, more productive <laughs> way. Yeah, no, 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 I totally, totally. I, I see well, what you're saying. There was also not one Tea Party. I mean, when people ask me about the Tea Party, I said, which Tea Party are you talking about? I mean, there was an original grassroots Tea Party, and then it had this weird sort of grifty morphing where a lot of people used the term, and it became something completely unrecognizable. And it is the the grifty element that I think is going on to be much more dominant about it. But anybody that thought that that the Tea Party movement was really driven by concern about um, excessive government spending. Obviously, that's a that is that's a little bit naive. So, yeah. So Don Jr. is he's number two in that poll, right? Mike Pence is at thirty, and yeah. is this the poll you're looking at? Yeah, yeah. Pence is. At, I mean, there's a whole lot of names on the list: thirty for Pence, yeah. twenty for Trump. Haley with eight, Cruz with five, Romney gets five percent. Yeah, well, so, okay, let, let me in the yeah. in the time that we have though, because we've been focusing and 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 again, I'm I apologize, listeners, that we have not wallowed in the the Biden victory because I know you're listening to this over the weekend and this is the big story and trust me, um, 
Amanda and I are sitting are sitting around um, with 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 champagne and and fluffy slippers, and we are just really enjoying this moment, right? It hasn't fully hit yet. It'll no, 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 no. But I'm I'm trying to imagine somebody listening to this on Saturday and Sunday and saying, you know, why are you guys not more, you know, into this? How you know how long we have fought this? I mean, understand. I know that Tim Miller actually wrote a piece which uh, is, is in the Bulwark where he talks about how. Every day for the last 1,700 days, he has been obsessed with writing about or doing something about Donald Trump. And and it's like, I am there, except it's probably more than 1,700 days. So to say that this is going to be meaningful for us is putting it mildly. So, but, you know, and we will have the opportunity. But Josh, before we're, we're done with this, there's real, it, it, Democrats are thrilled with the election of Biden, but there's real anger about what happened at the congressional level and the Senate level. And uh, there was a conference call where they're kind of yelling at each other. And the moderates are really pushing back. And you mentioned one of the key names here, Abigail Spanberger, who is a centrist Democrat from Virginia, who reportedly basically said, I never want to hear you guys talk about socialism again. I almost lost this election because of the whole defund police movement. So you're having a lot of moderates pushing back, saying one of the reasons why we did not do better down ballot was because of this kind of woke leftism and we have to confront this and this is the first time in a long time that i've heard a lot of them push back on this that aggressively so what's going on on the democratic side yeah charlie i actually talked to a few top lawmakers on the democratic side yesterday and that that the anger at the aoc wing of the party is palpable and it's not just from the Spanbergers, the moderates, but there are a lot of liberals, even those in the progressive caucus that are really? furious. And there's a division within the progressive caucus between sort of the Bernie wing and the Warren wing of, of that of that of that side of the party. I like to say, like, in a my, my, my long-term crystal ball suggests that, you know, I think there's gonna be a anarchy in the Republican Party as if, if, if you know Biden wins and there's no leader in the Republican Party, yeah. McConnell's gonna be the, the face of the franchise. You know, there's gonna be pure anarchy with different characters trying to to fight it with each other over over little factions of support. But the Democrats are gonna have a true civil war between okay. the AOC wing really? and, and the moderate wing. And now all of a sudden Nancy Pelosi's majority against all expectations has narrowed to the point where AOC and Talib and Omar and a bunch of others literally could make her life miserable in the House because all they have to do is get about eight or 10 votes to say they're not going to vote for whatever the, 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 the majority of the party wants. And Pelosi is going to be in a, in a world of hurt and, and the divisions are going to be very, very obvious. So, I mean, and AOC is out, out there even after um, the reality of the election results came in and she's in as much denial as President Trump is on a lot of things and refuses to acknowledge how how you know, how badly a lot of progressive candidates and progressive messaging underperformed in swing states. I, I Nebraska, too, is my great, my fun example for the election. Nebraska, too, had one of the biggest swings, suburban Omaha. It, it's, it gives an electoral vote to Joe Biden, and Biden won it by a huge, huge margin, a big swing from 2016. But the Republican member of Congress, Don Bacon, did a lot better than he did in, 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 in the last election. So there were like swing voters in suburban Omaha that really liked Joe Biden and actually really liked the pragmatic Republican member of Congress. And I think like to be a little bit of an optimist, there are a lot of swing voters. There are a lot of persuadable voters in this election. And that is sort of the political sweet spot, whichever party can in their crazy, crazy times and with their crazy bases, whoever can find that political sweet spot first, uh, that's going to be the party that has the long term advantage. Yeah, um, um, Amanda, I, I I think sometimes that, you know, we talk about the, the, the bubbles. Um, I don't think sometimes the Democrats fully understand how those cultural issues propped up Republicans around the country. Oh, and, and and I know that when Claire McCaskill said this on MSNBC the other day, the former senator from Missouri, she just got flamed for it. But, you know, um, she knows what she's talking about because she's lived through it. I mean, she's watched what's happened to Missouri. She understands how these voters play, and it's not linear. And, and Andrew Yang, I think, is going to be an interesting voice, too, in, uh, in in Democratic moderate circles. Okay, so tell me, in, in the time we have left, because there's so much stuff going on, and um, I, I, I think I think this race is over, but as, as we are speaking, the network have not yet called it. I've called it. Now, what's the decision desk called, right? The... Uh, the HQ decision desk called it. A couple of other people look. Joe Biden's going to be the president elect. So, so tell me something cool, Amanda. Tell me something cool that you watched. That that uh, just oh, yeah. just pick anything. Just 
out of the air, some some development, well, something you're watching. I oh, like a movie I've watched. Because no, I no, no. I mean political. My fluffy, <laughs> my fluffy slippers. Um, oh I I'm very concerned about people accepting the results and yeah. how long the. I actually here's what I'm watching for: how Trump's lawyers are actually going to put their arguments about illegal ballots into court documents. I am dying to see that. It's going to be Borat level entertainment. Because they haven't done this. See, this is that 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 video yesterday where Rick Grinnell, who by the way, how the freak did he ever become, you know, director of national intelligence even temporarily? So he, he's he's there with Matt Schlapp down in Arizona, or no, in Nevada. And they're talking about voter fraud. And one of the reporters for NBC says, could you give us some evidence of voter fraud? Just give us something, anything. And they run away. They run away from the reporters and get in the van. There so. was also a hearing in Michigan to the same effect. It's on Zoom. You can look it up on Law and Crime, where the judge essentially says, you're presenting hearsay? And they're kind of like, yeah. And she said, get out of here with this. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So, uh, Josh, tell me something cool. Well, let me continue with my theme of relative optimism. Um, and we, we talked a little bit about the House and, and how Republicans sort of went against expectations to, to win some seats. But they actually, the seats they won and the new members that they elected are actually about as untrumpy as you can get. Um, Ashley Hinson is a you know TV anchor uh, who, who basically avoided talking about the president in her campaign in Iowa. Uh, she got elected. Carlos Jimenez, uh, the, the Cuban-American Miami-Dade uh, County executive, who actually said in his victory speech, we need to work together, Republicans and Democrats alike. Um, I thought that was pretty notable. Uh, Stephanie Bice in Oklahoma, Maria Sal. They're, they're, we talk about the Maria, Marjorie Taylor Greens, and rightly so. Like that wing of the party is crazy and needs to be yep, condemned yep. and criticized. But we, I, I said this in 2018, like AOC and Omar got all the attention, but it was, you know, the Abby Finkenauers and the Spanbergers and the... Alyssa Slotkins, that really made the majority for the Democrats. Well, they're going to be at least about a dozen Republicans, a diverse class, um, and, and a pretty moderate, I mean, a, I shouldn't say moderate, a pretty pragmatic class that didn't run on Trumpy messaging in their home districts. And I actually think these members are going to be ones to watch and, and ones that aren't getting enough attention right now, but they actually could signal kind of the break, the, the, the early warning or the early uh, signal that Trumpism is has peaked and it's going to be, there's going to be a change in our politics going forward. Okay, so I want to tell you something cool about uh, my my hometown here in in Wisconsin because I always work in Wisconsin. I live in the Wow counties, you know, Waukesha, Zaki, Washington County. Somebody crunched the numbers, and if you're looking for one of the reasons why you know Trump lost Wisconsin, look at these this underperformance relative to Republican congressional candidates in in the six counties right around me. So, for example, in this in the county that I'm in, Ozaki County, um, the Republican Senate, the Republican congressional candidate got two thousand three hundred forty six more votes than Donald Trump. I mean, you usually don't see, an, a, you know, an undercount for president um, in Washington County, eighteen hundred uh, Waukesha County, seventy nine hundred. You know, long story short, in these six counties, there were twenty about 24,000 more votes cast for Republican congressional candidates than for Donald Trump. He lost 24,000 Republican votes in just these six counties. And Biden's victory margin statewide, it's about 20,000. So Donald Trump lost more than 24,000 Republican votes in these six counties, and he lost the state by about 20,000 votes. So maybe there, there, are, there is such a thing as Republican voters against Trump. Just, just saying. Hey, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much on a very, very consequential day. We've waited for this for a very, very long time. Amanda Carpenter, Josh Kroshauer, uh, thanks for your time this morning. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday, living in a very different world, and we'll do this all over again.